Jolene. And I'm Emma. Two costume designers whose shared love of horror and fashion history have brought us together to deep dive the horror genre, going behind the scenes to uncover, understand, and analyze iconic horror characters and costumes that are simply to die for. Today on To Die For, we'll be diving into my favorite topic, queer identity in the horror genre, and how costume can inform a character through the lens of gender and sexual identity. This episode will be a two-part special, with this episode, part one, covering queer horror history from the 30s through the 70s. Part two will pick up in the 80s and bring us to present day. We'll discuss gender identity, gendered costuming, and queer code in relation to a handful of our favorite iconic queer horror films. I say handful because if it was up to me, we would cover about 90% of all (laughs) horror films ever made because I would argue that most horror films have plenty of queer elements and characters. But without further ado, let's jump right into the discussion, entering with the universal era of horror. This this topic also is... I'm excited to talk about this with you, Emma, because like we have discussed before, um, I'm straight. So when I watch a lot of these films, I don't see a lot of the queer coding, like... Mm-hmm. I can see it, you know, in things like Jennifer's body where I'm like, yes, that's it. And then, the, you know, the <laughs> vampire lovers, which I watched last night on your request when I was like, oh, no, this is a very gay film. Right. Um, but when you talk about this idea of the other and how it's used in horror, it, it's kind of the coding for so many just minority and other groupings. So, mm-hmm. of course, you'll get a queer reading from these. And, of course, you can... Um, see a lot of this. And then you pointed out some really good stuff. So I'm really excited to really dive into this and like learn a lot from you and from the community about this stuff. Yeah, absolutely. I'm super excited too, because I think that, you know, queer horror is something that is getting more and more traction coming up in more and more discussions around the genre um, as the years go by. And looking back uh, in horror history, it's really interesting to not only see how characters are coded, but to dissect it, understand sort of how it relates to what was happening in the world at that time. Um, And then something that I'm really interested in, of course, why we have this whole podcast is how costume can inform us of who a character is. Uh, And so much of queer coding, in my opinion, is through costuming. And we see that more and more in like the later decades, Um, but, and, you know, it gets more overt, but a lot of it has to do with uh, gendered clothing, uh, because I think that horror is, in its roots, was an inherently gendered genre. Um, And that's something that I definitely want to kind of pick apart today. Yeah. So we're going to start now with the 1930s. So the silent era of film was pre-Hayes Code. So you probably heard us talk about this Hayes Code a lot. Um, Basically, it was a code that was enacted in 1930 to set a set of moral standards to be upheld in filmmaking, in talking pictures specifically. Because before the Hayes Code, with some talking pictures of the 20s and then silent films, it, w- it was pretty much the Wild West. Um, but you kind of got the best of both worlds from that because you actually had a lot of women in filmmaking, um, a lot of minorities in filmmaking because they were all independents. They weren't run by these major studios. Mm-hmm. You could get away with a lot more. There was a lot more nudity. There was a lot more risque elements. Um, but then in 1930, 
you know, bigger picture started to come in, these things started to get unionized and a lot of the marginalized groups got pushed out. So in short, it is the, what the Hayes Code prohibits is nudity, suggestive dances, discussions of sexual perversity, which uh, uh, homosexuality fall, fell under that in the 1930s. Um, nudity, again, superfluous use of liquor, ridicule of religion, um, lustful kissing, all of these things that, gosh, I mean, there, so many of these things are in all of our movies today that I don't even think we would even bat an eye if we saw a lot of this stuff. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But... Basically, if you had any of these things, these were done with the exception of nudity, because nudity was just never a thing until Psycho, which we're going to get into. um, It had to come from the villain. So if there was any sort of queer coding, as we're going to talk about, you know, Mm -hmm. any sort of homosexuality, any sort of like behavior that was considered, quote unquote, deviant in that way, it was um, shown as wrong and it was shown by the villain so that the character did not triumph at the end and good or mostly you know straight men were the ones that were winning at the end of these movies and triumphing in these movies mm-hmm. and you know in this era we didn't see the final girl trope in the way we sort of know it today um, we of course mainly saw women as victims most of the time uh, and with sort of the one exception, um, or there's, I mean, there's a few exceptions. Uh, one of my favorite films, Cat People, was one of the earliest films that I felt like in horror really showcased pretty overtly, um, in my opinion, uh, the queer otherness. Um, Irina is basically, uh, she's our main character. Uh, she is antagonized as this sort of like scary other and she seems to only have a connection with women she you know can lock eyes with a woman and a woman's like oh my sister and there's this kind of like bond that they can't explain and um, you know of course many could say sure it's just sisterhood but you know there's a lot of horror films where I feel like it's like oh they're just such good friends and you're like Really? (laughs) Are they or should they be kissing right now? Should they be kissing? And (laughs) that I think was one of them because the thing with the Hayes Code is that filmmakers then just got very creative with coding their films, you know, and especially in the medium of horror. uh, That's what makes it one of the most cathartic genres is that we're able to not only process our fears and process our trauma, Um, but also showcase the ways in which we feel othered by society. And so I think that films like that really exemplify something that I love about the horror genre. Um, And also films like Rebecca uh, do something very similar. I mean, that's a very good example of that kind of a character that just doesn't really connect with men. You know, she's not going to be overtly attracted to women, but it's sort of in the what's not being said. Um, and that's where you see most of the coding. In a lot of these films, I've noticed you don't get a lot of it coming through in the costuming because they generally will still, at least in this era, adhere to um, pretty typical uh, feminine, masculine gender roles. Um, what's your take on that? I agree with that because 
also within the confines of the history of costume design at the time too, it wasn't the field that we look at it as today. So with the exception of like the Bride of Frankenstein, where you're creating these creatures, most of the time it is either French couturiers coming in and designing these films from, you know, Paris runway collections, or like in the case of Cat People and Rebecca, it is very much everyday wear of the time. And there was no such thing as, which we can dissect too, because Emma and I really want to dissect this word androgyny of, you had somebody like Catherine Hepburn in the the 30s and the 40s, who, you know, was one of the first women on screen to be wearing slacks. Mm -hmm. And, um, I, I mean, I, I'm not sure. I'm not, I don't know too much of her history. Is, was, she, was she gay? I mean, there was like that, yeah. there was always that discussion about if she was or if she wasn't. I, that's a good question. I always in my mind had it in my head that she was gay. Yeah. But I think that like many women of that time, a lot of the women that were queer, it's generally like, oh, rumors, like we're not, right. we're not really sure. And I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that if they were actually outed, that at the time it would have hurt their career. But yeah, because then you also at this time, you have women in noir like Marlena Dietrich, who, again, I'm I'm not sure if she was gay or not, but I think her whole stage persona was that she would wear tuxedos. And I think that that was just like an act, almost like drag for Mm -hmm. her, um, where she would adorn these more masculine personas in her films and these noir films because she works with... Orson Welles a lot and you know in in different noir films and so but with the exception of those characters or those caricatures of those actresses Mm -hmm. you have a lot of just standard suits and I mean you can even make the argument that suits of the 40s were quite masculine for women because women were in the workforce and so Mm -hmm. to have a an era of practicality when you were working and to be taken more seriously we saw the frame shift from these bias cut gowns and and blouses to box cut shoulders and they were nipped in at the waist so they were still feminine and you were still wearing skirts Mm -hmm. but you had shoulder pads you had broader shoulders women were in the workforce men were away at war so women to be taken seriously adjusted their wardrobe to fit this more masculine frame so you were already getting this more era of masculinity already with the absence of men so that was the that was the clothing of the day so like in cat people irene is wearing that it's it's a tailored skirt set suit but she's got the shoulder pads she's got the fedora which is um, typically a more masculine hat so like her frame is is very much mirroring that of her lovers in the yeah film. yeah absolutely i love talking about the 40s specifically because like you had said, and I do think you're right, a lot of the silhouettes that women wore sort of adapted to um, them becoming part of the workforce. And one of my favorite things to say about the 40s is that that was like the time in America specifically where we're like, did we really need men? Like we were so self-sufficient. Oh, I know. We were like, (laughs) we were like drawing, we didn't have enough materials for, you know, to make our stockings. So we just drew lines on the back of our legs and helped (laughs) each other. And like, we still looked fabulous and we were resourceful and we were in the workforce and it's just food for thought. We were pretty self-sufficient, but anyways, (laughs) I do think that um, the kind of, in this time period specifically, with kind of acts like that where women are wearing suits, um, a lot of it is for show. And I think that you see that 
for many years in queer horror um, where a lot of the queerness that you see sometimes is just to kind of like titulate the audience um, or kind of bring like a ooh scandalous aspect to it. Um, most of the time, not actually telling queer stories, especially at this time, you have to wonder why they were doing it. Like what was, did they find it funny? Did they find it like, what was entertaining about, you know, dressing up like another gender? Right. Uh, and was it actual drag or was it something where it was to make a mockery of someone else? You know, it's, I think there is a fine line between those two things uh, that, you know, especially at this time can be hard to decipher because of how heavily coded things had to be. Yeah, absolutely. And then, you know, like Rebecca and Cat People, they're very grounded as films. But then yeah. we also have on here Bride of Frankenstein and Dracula's Daughters. So, this idea of the monster or the creature as the other, you know, in that way. Now, I like I, I've been, I've done some reading where the original Frankenstein could also be read as queer coded, where it's a man, you know, creating another man. And I know that the, obviously the original book was written by Barry Shelley, who's a woman mm -hmm. um, who wasn't gay. She had a husband. I mean, she could have been, but she had a husband according to history. <laughs> um, yeah, so I, I think it's interesting using that monster trope. So what in The Bride of Frankenstein stood out to you, Emma? Because that was the one that you added to the list. Is it, yeah. El is it Elsa Lancaster's bride or is it like somebody else in the film? I think it's just a matter of the entire Frankenstein franchise. What's interesting about the story, you know, like you had mentioned, is that why people often note this as a queer franchise is what you had said, is that he's creating another man. Um, what's interesting in Bride of Frankenstein is the way that they sort of shifted um, the narrative to almost water down the queerness in the original. Um, and that's something that I noticed um, and pretty much just felt like I wasn't sure quite why that was happening. <laughs> um, and so it's something where we were in this era and pictures were not being made because scripts were too queer. Like in Dracula's Daughter, they literally made them change the script because it was too queer of a character, you know? And <laughs> it was just such a volatile time for queer filmmakers, you know, down to like casting bisexual actors and openly gay directors having to water down their stories like Bride of Frankenstein and like the entire Frankenstein franchise. And so a lot of it came down to who was working behind the scenes. And they were making intentional choices there to kind of propel or we would assume propel that storytelling because if they want their character to be bisexual, but they can't really say that um, a lot of it came down to who you were casting um, right. and the performance and the delivery um, when the script was kind of being audited to not be as much of a queer story as many were reading it to be. And that was a massive point of contention at the time. Uh, but with Dracula's Daughter, that's an interesting one because it's one of the earlier adaptions of the lesbian vampire trope that we saw um, in Gothic literature. A lot of Gothic literature um, was very queer. 
And they were able to be a little more open about it because it wasn't being turned into a picture, you know, until later. And then they were, of course, right. the people making those films were then audited. Um, but in that film, it's very, very clear uh, that there is a lesbian vampire. They even played into it with the marketing. Um, <laughs> and they kind of, oh, gosh, what was the slug line? It was like uh, women, like women beware, you know, of, of, of the lesbian vampire. I mean, they didn't say lesbian vampire. Right. Of the vampire, of Dracula's daughter. I love that film, but there's, you know, the gayest they could get is a scene where there's a lot of tension between uh, Dracula's daughter and this woman, uh, this victim. Uh, and, you know, she's telling her to kind of take her, like, her shoulders down and, uh, I'm sorry, the sleeves off of her shoulders. Hmm. And she's like, it's just this weird, like, tense scene where she's like by the fireplace and she's trying to keep her warm and she's just like ogling at her and then the girl's like why are you looking at me like that um (laughs) and that's about as you know blatantly queer as they could get um and I think it's pretty obvious yeah (laughs) oh yeah uh but you know of course they can't say ever that this character is gay they have to do everything in their you know power to make this character gay um and as far as the costuming in these films, again, especially when it comes to um, monsters, like with Bride of Frankenstein, for example, I wouldn't say that the costuming is inherently queer coded. That's an, that's one of the examples that I feel like it comes down to the story. Um, but in Dracula's Daughter, you can see that she's, you know, in a very much feminine uh, garb, but she's still has very, you know, it's strong lines. It's very much in the same color palette as any male vampire would be, but she's still very feminine. Uh, I think a lot of what you see um, is that, and this kind of goes into the 50s and 60s and so on, but you really start to see the supporting characters play into very heavily gendered stereotypes, which makes the monsters or the antagonists stick out because oftentimes they'll be dressed rather either androgynously which of course is a word that is up for interpretation but they'll be a little more something about their costuming will stick out as not particularly of either gender and it'll be more in line with either the monster that they're playing or you know in something like cat people it'll be something where she's wearing the fedora but also elements of femininity and kind of mixing the masculine and feminine and that kind of marks them as abnormal which marks them as you know the antagonist or the monster i always think of that with um within the bride of frankenstein where for most of the film you're getting male to male interactions so you have Mm -hmm. the doctor and the creature and then you have the doctor and igor or is igor in that one or yeah i think that's the same character as fritz right yes that's the same okay yeah yeah where um you know the two of them are kind of interacting and yeah you get a lot of and then just i guess to not make it oh right that's right we're doing a movie about the bride of frankenstein in the last like 20 seconds of the film we get elsa lancaster you know, mm-hmm. as the bride. And she still looks quite put together for a woman that's been sewn 
from scraps of pieces. I mean, that's, mm-hmm. that's also like a gendered double standard that like the male creature can be as ugly, as horrendous as possible, but the female creature still has to be, you know, held up to a certain standard. Yeah, absolutely. And that's what's so interesting about that story because as we know, Frankenstein's monster is supposed to be this, you know, like Adonis. He's supposed to be this glorious man and he certainly doesn't come out that way. And that seems to be fine. But Bride of Frankenstein still has a pretty put together look. It's very constructed. Um, It's not as torn up or rough around the edges by any means. And you know, her face is also not as torn up. It's not no, as... No, she's still beautiful. She's got like she's one still, scar. <laughs> I know. Yeah. And so I think that also very much reflects um, the expectations of women at the time and the expectations of women now. Um, yeah. But especially back then, we were really seeing that and it was basically hard to avoid. You kind of couldn't avoid it. I, don't, I can't think of any example in that time period where there was a woman that truly looked like fully masculine or looked rough around the edges that, you know, to the extent that men were allowed to be. And also there was no feminine men as well. No, no, there wasn't. And you either got, I think my only thinking with women who could look rough around the edges were older women. Like it was okay for them to be hags and to be like swamp women and like these, you know, these creatures that were just like rolling out from bed, mm-hmm. you know, with a staff and like a hood. Mm-hmm. And they were the only ones because they were older. So therefore they're not desirable anymore. And that's, that's like a whole right. other set of like issues. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. With older women, um, oftentimes you just aren't going to see the same standards placed upon them as you do in younger women. Um, and your assumptions about them aren't going to be the same. Like a right. queer coded young person and a queer coded older person aren't going to be viewed the same. And you oftentimes find that they're costumed differently uh, because of that, because we have different standards for them and because ageism is alive and well. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, so one thing that Emma and I are, are going to also kind of touch on throughout these decades is some different Hitchcock films because like starting with Rebecca, because, you know, Hitchcock had been making films since the twenties. He made them all the way up until 76 was his last film. And it was, I, so I've, I've been doing some, some deep dive on Hitchcock right now because I'm working on my lecture and it was never really clear if Hitchcock was queer or not. Um, He, you know, he despised women. He thought to make them more human you had to be vulgar to them. You had to mm-hmm. kind of rough them up on set so that they could elicit reactions that they were supposed to have. I, in reading that quote, it was kind of like, you really shouldn't be doing that. But also like there, there's like a weird, not double standard, but um, he's kind of breaking the norm of, of holding these women up to this beauty standard mm-hmm. while also being a bit of a predator about it. Right. But then he never had those obsessive close relationships with his male actors like he did with his female actors. So that's why it was very unclear if he was gay or not um, because he was very self-conscious as a man. He was always overweight. He never felt like he fit into his skin. So they never knew if he envied his male actors for their confidence and their looks just from, from a vanity standpoint or if he envied them because 
they and other women would never love him the way that he wanted to be loved or right. desired in that way. I don't think he, I don't think he truly, from all, what, what I'm reading, again, I don't know him, but from <laughs> what I'm reading, I don't know if he knew how to love in a compassionate way. I think he only knew obsession. I think he only knew desire and because he married Alma and everybody said that they were more like brother and sister, that they worked together and she was the only one that could keep him in check. Mm-hmm. But it was it was always very platonic. There was never a lot of passion there. Yeah. But he had this obsession for his co you know, his 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 leads, female leads, and he just kind of discarded the male leads in this very um cavalier way about it too. Yeah. It's Hitchcock is a really interesting topic. Um something that I think about a lot is uh, Joan Harrison, who uh-huh. was one of the many women that he had hired um, through many of his projects. And he also, he hired many, many women. So many women. To yeah. work for him. And that was not common at the time by any means. Um, but Joan Harrison, she uh, is presumed to be a gay woman. Um, there's a really interesting book out about her that kind of dives into that. Um, but she's kind of credited as one of the main women behind Hitchcock and she worked very closely with him and more specifically with Alma. Um, but she won, I believe she was nominated for co-writing foreign correspondent and Rebecca. Um, and she's very much noted for having sort of the, bringing the suspense to the table in the Hitchcock films, which Hitchcock is known for. And so it's really interesting that a lot of Hitchcock's works were made by women, if not queer women, in some way, shape, or form. And also his films were known for being kind of this, these subverse films that were different than what was being done at the time in noir. Um, and I just wonder if a lot of that has to do with the fact that there were more women working on his films. So yeah. there was a bit more of a female influence there. Um, and a lot of the queer coding in Rebecca is because there was a queer woman who wrote it. He also didn't care, uh, who was working on his set, like if they were Mm. queer or not, like he didn't have an aversion as long as the person did the work. Like he was, he had a very open set policy, which I thought was really interesting for the the man that he is and how he carries himself Mm -hmm. was that like, you know, he didn't care if, if any of these people were gay or straight on his set. He was just like, just get the work done and I'm going to take the credit for all your work. <laughs> like that, That's right. like how he worked, <laughs> which I found really interesting, you know, that he was hiring a lot of women. He was hiring a lot of queer men and women. He just wasn't going to give them credit. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I mean, that's one of the things that made me really want to dive into the people that worked behind his films because that very reason, like what were they not credited for? And right. <laughs> there was many, many things that like Joan Harrison basically had produced that, she wasn't credited for producing things that she had co-written that she wasn't credited as a writer. It's kind of crazy, but yeah. not surprising for that era. When we shift out of the 40s into the atomic age, what we're seeing in the 50s is kind of what we talk about when we talk about the 80s. This complete 180 from what just happened the decade before. You had all the men coming back from war. So women were kicked out of the workforce. They were pushed back into the home. They were forced to the into these domestic roles. You had much more families moving to the suburbs. So you had a lot of redlining that was 
already happening, but now really starting Mm -hmm. to happen because GIs took their GI bills out to the suburbs. And it was just like this very sterile, strange decade for films. Yeah, there was a really tense atmosphere in the world and particularly in the US that produced a lot of thinly veiled queer horror, but also we saw a lot of the atomic fear create this particular kind of paranoia around the other, but this time the other was seen as like foreign countries and the victim being the US. And this came through in a lot of sci-fi pictures, like Invasion of the Body Snatchers. It came from outer space, not of this earth, and, you know, a plethora of others. Uh, But I think that there was something about this tense, you know, zeitgeist that was happening, uh, like you had said, on top of this kind of like American dream, cookie cutter, conventional like expectations there was really something bubbling in the 50s um that i think was most certainly sort of the beginnings of what we would see in the post haze code world um you know a decade later and so you're really seeing a lot of different factors contribute to this kind of oppressive world that fueled like social persecution of LGBTQ community. Um, And so you're kind of seeing the very sprinklings of an organized gay rights movement um, just in happening in the US. We also saw a lot of like teenage horror. And so there's a big teenage horror craze that we would see like teenage Frankenstein, teenage werewolf, teenage this, that, and the other, um, which we also saw in the 80s where there was, of course, uh, being like LGBTQ issues and rights became a part of like the mainstream conversation in the 80s, which we'll get into in the next episode. Um, I'm very curious if there is any kind of connection as to why the teen horror craze seems to happen at the same time as a lot of really tense things happening in the U.S., Like there's some sort of like coming of age, like becoming this monster. And, you know, at the same time as you're finding yourself, uh, I read a lot of those as queer, specifically Mm -hmm. teenage werewolf. Um, I was a teenage werewolf, which I believe when I was in the third grade, I took part in a production of. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, I'm very familiar (laughs) um played diner diner waitress number two um but (laughs) but you know with teenage werewolf um that's 1957 basically there's um this character who's becoming this beast and he has all these crazy you know impulses and he goes to this doctor who basically suggests regressive hypnotherapy which is you know seems pretty akin to the regressive treatments at the time uh that were recommended for queer people to eliminate you know their their gay desires um but you know he goes to this doctor early stage memories are basically just unleashing his inner beast uh and that seems like a pretty good example of a coming of age story in relation to queer people because that basically just sounds like a queer allegory you know like you're finding yourself you're uncovering your sexuality um and at the time uh and also not just at the time that regressive therapy like hypnotherapy continued yeah um to abuse young gay people um but we saw a lot of stories like that where you're seeing the beast and they're trying to control it 
but you're finding yourself and, you know, it just unleashes and you become this monster. Um, and you could very much read the monster as a gay person, not unlike what we saw in the 30s and 40s. Yeah. And I wonder if that's because for the first time you had an acknowledgement of teenagers and mm-hmm. the younger generation that they had something that was solely their own. So you had rock music coming into play for the first time. They had their own clothing. They had their own. They were pretty much a new demographic at this point. So I'm wondering if it was part queer allegory and part adults not knowing how to now control their children because they were now given this freedom to think and act for themselves. Well, still, you know, as much as you can as a teenager, but usually, I mean, we know our teenage years now in the modern age as a time of self-exploration, whether that Mm -hmm. be sexuality or um, just in taste and preference and taste in music that we want to listen to and things and how we want to dress and who we want to become in our adult lives. Mm-hmm. So I, I do think it's a little bit of both of like from, you know, from a, um, from a straight perspective, it definitely can be looked at as like parents not understanding what is going on with their children at this point. And also used as that queer allegory that like maybe their children are grappling with sexuality in a way that they also don't know how to communicate with them on. Yeah. Because the church became very involved in a lot of things that were happening in the 50s. I mean, the Mm -hmm. 50s was the reason why In God We Trust was added to the dollar bill because they thought that by going back to church, by praying more, you know, it was going to solve these things that were happening with the atomic bombs and the wars that were going on and all of this like disenfranchisement from, you know, from communism, from McCarthyism, from all of these things that were happening at the time, God was added to the Pledge of Allegiance. So there was like this movement back to religion that was happening as well. That was also suppressing a lot of this queer culture because yeah. of, of things that were may or may not have been written in the Bible. And we're not knocking religion. I am. Yeah myself and not a religious person um then that's uh, that's what I'll say about that but <laughs> but yeah I can attest to that I am yeah. <laughs> also not a religious person so um I think that there's also something that you know when I think about queerness in film and particularly horror um there is this kind of like why were they making it you know horror has you know always been known to explore the current fears and I think that sometimes you're it's a filmmaker um, who is basically creating a story where we're exploring it through the lens of finding yourself and finding power in your queerness. Um, but then there's also, especially in these earlier films, um, very much a sense of the other was written not as, you know, not from a queer lens at all, or not from a progressive lens, um, but rather a, this is a scary thing to be scared of. And so a lot of the queer coding that you see in these films, Hayes Code or not, um, it's because people were afraid of gay people. You know, that was something that threatened the conventions of the, you know, American household, the family unit. Um, It threatened the heteronormativity that was absolutely rampant during the 50s um, that we still kind of hold on to to this day. Um, That's kind of been generational. Um, And so it is an interesting question to pose of why like, okay, this seems queer coded. This is obviously a queer horror film, but why, you know, like, why, why is it that way? Um, And yeah, definitely would say that it's very possible that it's, you know, 
people not knowing how to grapple with teens coming of age, you know, especially in the late 50s, the closer you get to the 60s, you're getting closer and closer to the youth quake. And obviously, there were years before that in the 50s that were bubbling up to that. And so teens were really finding their own voices. Um, And, you know, that also comes down to like how fashion itself shifted in the real world. Yeah. We really saw a big shift because for many, many years, uh, fashion was really just a status of wealth. Um, And it was not a cool thing necessarily. It was kind of gaudy. It was, you know, big hats and pearls and that kind of thing, you know, nice suits. Um, But the 50s is really the first time you start to see teens rebel against that and use it to... um, find their personality and express themselves and kind of identify themselves as part of a group. Um, And that's really when things started to shift, which we of course saw in the sixties much stronger, but it definitely started in the fifties. And I think there has to be a correlation with the teen craze starting and teens kind of beginning to find themselves through fashion. Absolutely. Yeah. And I definitely, I want to talk about pants with that because so from the late thirties, Trousers were available to women. Um, they weren't they they had dungaree blue jeans, as my grandmother used to call them. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> but it was it was really for women going to work. Or you had something called a beach pajama, which was like a palazzo pants set that the legs were so mm-hmm. wide that when you stood, it looked like a skirt. But it was it was more leisure wear or athletic wear. Comfy pants. Comfy pants. Oh my god, so beautiful! I want a beach pajama set. I really do. I. <laughs> I think I might have to get one. They're uh, this, just a small plug, but House of Foxy, this vintage brand from England, has beautiful 30s replica beach Ooh, pajama sets. Don't mind so, if I do. Right? <laughs> so you see a lot of women in the 40s obviously wearing pants, overalls, the Rosie the Riveter look, but they were going to work. But once you left the factory, you were changing back into that skirt or that dress. And the 50s... Now, while women still weren't allowed to wear pants to the workforce, even though there were a lot less women working in the 50s, yeah, um, you saw like teachers and, and women like that, secretaries. <laughs> right. Right. Good ladies. Yes. Um, but you started to get more and more women wearing pants, like just mm-hmm. jeans around the house. Capris were a fashion called pedal pushers. Um, and young teen girls started wearing capris and jeans out Mm -hmm. to go to the movies, to go hang out, you know, at the soda fountain to get a milkshake and all of these things where they didn't have to really wear these dresses and skirts anymore because the 50s was a time of explosion in the fabric department. We had, we didn't have to ration our our fabric anymore. So we were able to make yards and yards of tulle skirts that just engulfed you. If you've ever seen Grease, if you've ever seen Back to the Future, any of these movies where you just see these huge petticoated skirts, mm-hmm. you know, think of women like Grace Kelly and all Marilyn Monroe wearing these huge garments. Yeah, absolutely. With younger girls now started to wear pants. So we start more so, I mean, Marlena Dietrich and those women of the noir 30s and 40s definitely pioneered this, but we start getting this feminine androgyny, which I know is a word that you definitely want to dissect. So like, let's kind of, let's dissect this. So Emma, why do you have an issue with the word androgyny? (laughs) So the word androgyny to me 
feels like it's a word where it's associated with women dressing masculine. Um, only recently, of course, we're starting to see um, men dressing feminine and that being called androgyny. Um, you know, it's it's I think it has been used to kind of label men wearing feminine yeah. clothing, but that's not what you think of when you think of an androgynous, you know, genderless clothing shop. Right. A lot of those clothing shops, you'll see it's just like boxy t-shirts, um, baggy pants. It's just baggy clothing, essentially. But right. oftentimes, if not all the time, those are in masculine um, masculine silhouettes. Um, and this all comes down to the fact that we've, we still gender clothing, you know? We still gender skirts. Pants are less gendered now, but have their roots in, you know, masculine clothing. Right, which is um, why they're more widely accepted versus exactly. a man who is not, you know, wearing a skirt or something like that. Right, exactly. Yeah. That's much, regardless of how comfortable and breezy they are. Uh, the Scottish have been wearing kilts for years, and those men love it. They and I love, love a man it. in a kilt. It Absolutely. <laughs> who doesn't? And I think that, you know, what's interesting is that, you know, we have these cultures and people who are wearing skirts like it's nothing because it's nothing right (laughs) and then in america it's like oh that's androgyny and i'm starting to wonder what androgyny even is because it definitely doesn't seem to have room for non-binary people um and i'm kind of like what do people think of when they think of androgyny and what do they think of when they think of non-binary people wearing clothing are non-binary people inherently wearing androgynous clothing or is that us continuing to gender people (laughs) yeah i almost think there needs there needs to be a new word because even Men like David Bowie and Prince, who were very effeminine but still masculine and kind of towed the line of both, they Mm -hmm. still had, you know, very masculine, um, even though the color palette might not have been so masculine, they were still in pantsuits. They were still in, you know, clothing that is generally or inherently masculine. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I would love to get into this even more um, with a potential guest that we'll be having on our second part to this episode, um, because I would really love to hear more perspectives, um, especially from non-binary people on this. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Because it seems to me like it is soon going to be an outdated term because it's just another way to gender clothing. You know, Um, we see like modern representations of people like Harry Styles, who people like, oh, he's always dressing so androgynous. You know, he wore a dress on the cover of Vogue and he usually wears such high waisted pants. And, you know, you see him wearing high waisted pants and you're like, why is that androgynous? Right. You know, it's and what 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 defines androgyny? I think it's definitely it's more of something that I want to keep posing questions to than I have the answers. Um, But I do think it also plays into a lot of the tropes that we see in gendered clothing. And so like in the 50s, um, one of my favorite films uh, by Clouseau, uh, Le Diaboliques uh, in 1955, um, it's essentially about two women who are working at a boarding school in France and they want to kill their headmaster. Uh, who happens to be the husband of one of those ladies. Um, And we basically see what many would say is sort of the two spectrums um, of queer women, uh, which I would, I would argue is not the only two uh, types of queer women is a lipstick and a butch. And 
I really would like to talk about those kinds of stereotypes. Um, I would say that the high femme lesbian wasn't really something that was a stereotype in the 50s because I feel like, and even, even past the 50s, we were pretty much only seeing the butch lesbian as the only type of lesbian, you know? And of course, I would argue that uh, being a lesbian goes beyond being femme or butch, but, you know, especially at this time, there was even less stereotype. It was very, right. very one-dimensional. And so in these two women, we see one woman who's relatively feminine and frail and kind of soft. Um, but then we see this other character, um, Nicole, I believe is her name. And she is um, not only like an actually like quite curt and upfront kind of character, um, but we see her in very much masculine silhouettes or as masculine as women's wear, you know, would come, you know, her hair was up. She was wearing these big cigarette pants uh, that looked quite heavy, you know, and had a belt. Um, she's wearing this structured button down top with a strong collar, uh, her sleeves rolled up. She looks really tough and really masculine, um, which one begs the question, why is toughness only associated with masculinity? Uh, right. which we can definitely get into in the next episode with like 80s final girls. But then also it kind of equates to that stereotype of the butch lesbian being masculine. The lesbian is masculine. Um, and I think that that is another way that this film, it's pretty like upfront in how queer these women are. I would mm -hmm. say again, of course it's 1955 they're not going to say that these women are queer. So it's the same type of this is definitely queer, but they can't say it that we saw in the 30s and 40s. It definitely makes me think about how we stereotype um, queer people and how it's usually at, you know, the bare bones, especially in this era, which we didn't even see in men until a couple decades later. Um, but, you know, men are feminine, like gay men are feminine, lesbian women are um, are masculine and again of course and there still really isn't enough room for non-binary characters in horror which is a whole nother topic um, right. but I very much wonder about stereotypes and queer coding and when it becomes helpful and when it's harmful you know like stereotyping queer people into like yes the lesbian's gonna wear something masculine that's how you know she's a lesbian I don't th I think that overall that kind of stereotype in the real world is relatively harmful or not harmful but maybe rather there's a lot of erasure in that kind of stereotype a lot of erasure of queer people um but then again when it comes to films that had to be queer coded right um it is kind of a marker or you know a flag of a queer character many times and so that's maybe where i see it potentially being more helpful but i'm i'm very curious on your thoughts on gendered clothing stereotypes and all that jazz when it comes to this kind of new revolution or where women were wearing pants for the first time right oh <laughs> pants i think like you were saying we're in a time where you couldn't outwardly say like I'm gay or this character is gay and representing this sort of trait, mm -hmm. those visual markers in reality constructed by the patriarchy thinking that like, oh, well, if women like women, then the women, that one woman, you know, wants to be a man. Well, that, that's right. not the case. You know, I right. know plenty of, of gay women who 
love frilly dresses and, you know, getting dressed up and like doing all these high femme things that you wouldn't quote unquote think of, you know, by putting them into that box. But I think for film's sake, because it's a visual medium, because it's at a time when so many leading men and women who were closeted couldn't be out, couldn't talk about their private lives or had alternate private lives, especially in the 50s, you have men like Brock Hudson and all these people who had alternative lives within the media, which the media, it was not like it is today, but just, you know, to walk red carpets with and stuff, to have those visual signifiers. Mm -hmm. Because, right, isn't isn't the late 40s, early 50s, I remember reading that this was the start of that, like, leather daddy movement for other gay men to find other gay men through through wearing leather through those symbols so those visual cues because you couldn't talk about it yes yeah definitely and I think that that became a lot stronger in the 50s um was kind of when that sort of I think queer flagging has always existed in some shape shape or form you know in fact in the in the 20s, I believe it was actually way more acceptable to be gay than it was in the 50s you know yeah um, people were way more open about the clothes that they were wearing and gender bending, as they say, um, even though it's all an illusion. But um, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, definitely. There, yeah. there absolutely was a lot of movements that were kind of like markers as I'm queer. I can't say it, though, because there will be a lot of violence enacted on me and my family. Yeah, yeah. I think when it becomes harmful is when it gets taken out of the context of a, of a film in this way and just a visual marker in the film because a lot of these, as a straight person, a lot of these representations that I'm seeing, like we were talking about, which we'll get into more in these 70s horror films, is like there are queer coded characters, but they're still being portrayed as predatory to these like frail mm. straight women that like already are damsels in distress because the patriarchy has taken them down in the 50s and they're like, this monster's picking me up and I can't move. I'm like, <laughs> just right. smack them. But like, yeah. you know, like, and then on top of that, you have these queer-coded characters then going after these already frail and helpless <laughs> poor women. I know, yeah. But I'm absolutely. like, come on, that's like a terrible representation that like queer does not equal harmful in that way so yeah Yeah, absolutely and it kind of harkens back to um what we touched on with like marlene dietrich wearing you know suits as almost a kind of performance or drag um and you know dragon horror is a we want to do an entire episode on that um but just to kind of touch on that again um i think it it can become harmful when those stereotypes are then made into a mockery. Right. Um, I'm definitely not saying Marlene Dietrich is like making a mockery of like what she thinks queer women are doing. Um, I don't think that's it. Um, But I definitely try and think about, um, you know, when I see a character on screen and, you know, they're in drag, it comes down to, we even, we see it today. We see it on SNL, you know, like a few months ago where, you know, a straight man is pretending to be a woman and you're like, is this actually funny or is this deeply right. offensive? I think that's where it becomes maybe a little more harmful is when stereotypes lean that way and it's like a straight person making mockery of a queer person or right. a film making mockery of a queer person and we see it come through and how they're portrayed in their costume. Absolutely. And we start to see that now as we get into the 60s, so the 60s is is a pretty split decade because for the first 8 years so it's not it's not equally split down the middle but for the first 8 years of it we still have the Hayes code enacted 
And then in 68, the Hays Code is dropped and it's replaced with this new rating system that we know today where you have G, you have PG and so on. And at the beginning of the decade, you have this like bright and shiny idea of what America is. And we're specifically talking about America because Emma and I are from the States. And, Mm -hmm. you know, so these are the things that this is how we are framing this conversation. And, And then all of a sudden, Kennedy is shot and we get thrust into Vietnam, which we shouldn't have been there in the first place, and right. and, and, and the civil rights movement, and the sexual revolution, and rights for women, and all of these things start, like all of this tumultuous stuff that was bubbling under the surface, like Emma was talking about in the 50s, now is coming to a head, and it's crashing, and it's crashing hard. And so we start the decade with the movie Psycho, which is a portrayal of a character who, whether Norman Bates is or is not trans or gender fluid in in some way, because he is dressing up as his mother and he is using that persona to kill and hurt, but then is presenting male to Marion Crane and to, you know, other people, you know, her sister when she comes, that is really harmful. But then we end the decade in 69 with the Stonewall riots led by a queer trans woman. So, like, it's a, a very interesting bookend of the decade, for yeah. sure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, let's get into Psycho. So, again, it's another Alfred Hitchcock film starring Anthony Perkins and Janet Lee, who gets killed mm-hmm. 30 minutes into the movie. Spoilers, <laughs> spoilers. You've had Sad. 60 years to watch this. <laughs> yeah. Um, what's interesting about Psycho is, you know, again, we come back to Hitchcock, very interesting director can't you know really get a vibe check from this guy um (laughs) you want a vibe um, check come to my lecture yeah except in jolene's lecture which will be (laughs) happening very soon um (laughs) but anthony perkins is an i believe he never came out as gay but was like a pretty known gay man okay um and i think it's kind of it's alluded to that the fact that Hitchcock very likely knew about his sexuality. I think it was something that was like out behind the scenes, but not in front of the scenes. Um, And I would imagine that that played a role in Hitchcock's choice to cast him. Um, And he also, um, Anthony Perkins had later stated um, about the role that he had played the character as gay or bisexual. Um, And so that much is true, whether or not that was the original intentions, you know, maybe Mm -hmm. up for interpretation. I don't think it's really up for interpretation. No, I think it's pretty clear. Yeah. I Now, I've never seen, I know that there are two sequels to Psycho, both starring Anthony Perkins, reprising his role as Norman Bates. Mm -hmm. So I don't know how he continues to play the character. Mm -hmm. So I just have my knowledge from this first movie. But I think... It's interesting because, right, so, like, we, what we were just talking about where this was a time where they were using these, like, conversion therapy techniques to either repress sexual desire or try to, like, quote, unquote, pray the gay away or whatever mm-hmm. they were trying to do with these – with people. And yeah. it felt like, from my perspective, that they were using – those queer undertones to solidify the fact that that the character of Norman Bates was mentally ill that because and and it wasn't just the fact that he had m- like 
emotional trauma from his parents, which is a legitimate mm-hmm. thing. You can have emotional trauma from your mother or your father or both and, yeah, uh, you know, and, and m- not mature as rapidly as other people. Now, I'm not a psychologist, but I've read enough to kind of, you know, not to be an expert, but to, to, but to, <laughs> to know enough about it. Yeah, yeah. But it, it did kind of feel like to justify the fact, you know, they were using him wearing his mother's clothing and having those like little tendencies and then, you know, having him saying that he was playing the character gay. And I wonder if he was gay, how he felt about that or or was he used to it because that was the trope of the time. So there was no other box to put himself in as a gay man. I'm curious what that, what that was like for him. Yeah, absolutely. I I feel like I've heard, um, you know, murmurs of that, he felt or it could just be assumed that he kind of yeah. came came out through his acting mm. but not you know in in real life or to the public yeah um, it's kind of akin to um texas chainsaw massacre mm-hmm. um and gosh which there's simply so many like we covered in, <laughs> in the first episode but um the kind of I feel like it poses the same question of, you know, a character that's dressing up in their mother's clothing, um, dressing up like a woman, but nothing else about it is explicitly stated. Um, And I'm very much in the camp of, you know, showing versus telling in film. Right. Um, And of course, a lot of queer code is shown and not told. And I think that also that theme outlasted the Hayes Code. That's why a lot of characters, I I think, are going to present those sort of things without really fully diving into it. Um, because filmmakers got really, really good at coding characters. And yeah. I think it became maybe a bit of a habit. Um, but also that I think um, filmmakers wanted you to wonder about a character. And, you know, some cases maybe... Hmm, maybe we're using queerness, you know, as a tool of suspense and that's weird. Right. You know, I'd rather I'd rather just see a character be gay and that's like not something we have to like wonder about or, you know, use as a plot device. It's just like is right. what it is. Um, but yeah, it's definitely interesting to think about those kinds of scenes because that's pretty that's pretty blatant you know we're not like maybe the characters like like in the 30s and 40s you know and you have trouble sort of identifying the very finite ways that the costuming would differ um this is something where there's a scene where it's very overt there's a very overt change and it's a part of the plot i think it's very much up for interpretation um on how people read that but of course, most of the time that reading is going to be of the queer lens. I think what sets Norman Bates apart from his other counterpoints that we're going to talk about in the second part of like Buffalo Bill and different characters of that stature, he never explicitly says that he feels that he's a woman or wants to be a woman or envies right. women in that way, where it is just this weird obsession that he does have, a legitimate obsession that he has with his mother. And mm-hmm his mother has gotten so far into his psyche that he is now punishing sexually adventurous women like Marion Crane Mm -hmm. as his mother. So that, yeah. So I wonder if that is now I'm curious to hear what a trans person's um, reading of Norman Bates is. If it isn't insulting as somebody like Buffalo Bill, or is it more of writing that line of like, yeah, yeah, that's a good question. It also kind of reminds me, um, 
obviously not a 60s movie, but of Henry, Portrait of a Serial Killer. Mm. Um, just in the way that there's kind of this obsession with um, killing women because of your mother. Right. Um, you know, Henry has like issues with his mom and uh, her bringing around men and being, you know, sexually fluid. And uh, so he kills sexually active women, um, right. which I guess is not an uncommon theme in horror. <laughs> Um, right, because that's a whole other set of issues. That's a whole different set of issues yeah. that we'll definitely touch on in the 80s. Oh, um, God, yeah. Because that was just like, that's how you define the 80s in horror. Right. Killing sexually active women. Love that for us. <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah, yeah, I would agree. I think that there's a lot of different ways to read Norman Bates. Um, again, like not being a trans person, um, I don't know. I don't feel like I have, you know, the wouldn't be the one to really right. touch on this. Um, Absolutely, yeah. Which is, of course, why we uh, want to speak with more trans people about these kinds of things when it comes uh, to gender identity and horror um, and get some new perspectives. But yeah, the 60s are interesting. We're definitely coming out of Hayes Code. Um, I believe 1963, that's still... Hayes Code ended in 65? 68. 68, okay. Yeah, so Rosemary's Baby was the first non-Hayes Code film that got pushed through, which is why there's so much in that one. Right, okay, that makes a lot of sense. What's interesting is that... um, the 1963 film, The Haunting, which is um, a haunting of Hill House adaption, uh, has an openly lesbian character in it. Yeah. Um, and I'm wondering how that was allowed. Right, yeah. <laughs> um, I'm not really sure. Uh, I guess it was maybe, maybe it wasn't as vulgar as other scripts perhaps right like or or that people would i mean of course all of these things would be like not vulgar to us right um but that at the time perhaps there was just a different reading of those kinds of films uh but yeah i'm not really sure how that came to be but i believe that's one of the first openly gay yeah characters in horror uh definitely probably not the first but in my from what I can remember, that is one of the very first, no longer queer coded, but actually queer characters. Um, yeah. And you also saw a theme of kind of trans allegory in horror during that time uh, or trans themes. Unfortunately, I found that many of them were exploitative um, in the same way, you know, using you know, making a mockery of queer people. Uh, You saw things like Frankenstein Created Women in 1967, um, which is one of the earliest mentions of of a transition in, I believe, film history, but definitely horror history. Um, But it's pretty obviously a transgender plot where we're having a character make a transition uh, into the body of... um, Playboy playmate, Susan Denberg. (laughs) Um, And so I'm wondering why that suddenly became a theme in the 60s um, and why that was becoming a topic of conversation, but more specifically being something that horror found it could exploit. Um, Because, of course, these things were not done through the lens of a trans person or through the lens of a queer person. Um, they were often done as like a wacky twist in the franchise, you know, right. 
or like, oh, wow, like this guy turned into a Playboy playmate. Like it's definitely wasn't quite done in a in a tasteful way. <laughs> right. Um, but was done. That was also that was a Hammer film who, of course, very soon after this, once we get into the 70s, uh, was very much known for their lesbian vampire films. And so Hammer Hammer Films is a very interesting company when it comes to LGBTQ themes and plots because they definitely use it a lot, but you have to wonder why. <laughs> yeah, it almost reminds me of how in the early 2000s when all of those like bro comedies were coming out, uh-huh. you know, like movies like American Pie and stuff like that where they were using people as the butt of jokes for the expense of the joke. Yeah. Where this isn't explicitly like a joke, but as you see in a lot of these Hammer Horror films, it's a lot of very beautiful women, very busty women, very like mm-hmm. scantily clad women, and those are the women that are being portrayed as openly gay in these films. So it's almost for the sake of the you know cis hetero male, like mm-hmm. a bro, but it was the yeah. 60s version of a bro. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Especially if they're using a playmate. I mean, that was that Playboy was straight up a porn magazine for men's entertainment and gay women but for men's entertainment (laughs) absolutely absolutely yeah uh the 60s were definitely sort of a turning point um where you were really seeing people just clawing at the Hays code (laughs) just trying to get out of it oh my god Um, yeah and you know of course it was the time of the youth quake teens had found themselves after they kind of started to in the 50s yeah fashion and trends took an entirely different turn um, which you could really see in film. You could see the way colors were shifting. You could see the way style and tone and themes were shifting. Film at large yeah. was really beginning to explore new themes. It was no longer, you know, a cookie cutter thriller. Yeah. Um, there was a lot at play in the 60s and really laid the groundwork for the 70s. Yeah. You also start to see different subsects of people. I think about this yeah. a lot when I watch older films that like from the 40s through the 50s, you really only had one type of person. And that exactly. was just woman in a dress number one, woman in a day dress number two. And there wasn't a lot of what we think of today as personal style where you have an array or a spectrum of, of personal style. And then in the 60s, you started to get ma. You got this hippie movement, you mm-hmm. this bohemian movement. You have this preppy movement. All of these different elements of different personality types were being accounted for along with the different types of rights that were coming up. So civil rights, women's rights, queer rights. So each section of rights like almost had their their uniform or had their um, style of dress, which I think is really powerful because, I mean, we think of today of like you can go into a store and you walk to the section of the store that aligns with you. Like if you're in a Target or something like that, if it's not like a a specific store that has Mm -hmm. one specific style, but you can go to these different brands and get all these different types of of clothing. Yeah, absolutely. That was very much a new thing. I mean, we had transitioned from kind of the uh, most of America having some form of erasure into finally getting some visibility into Mm -hmm. these, you know, subcultures um, and underground and that kind of thing. And it was really, it's really cool to see. It's really cool. I love the sixties. Yeah. Um, I think it's a really fascinating decade and has turned out some of the most fascinating styles. I think that trends really started to take off in the sixties and, with the youth quake 
new trends developed and they started developing quicker, which is why you see in the 70s mass production takes off. Yeah. And, you know, the commercialism of all these new different trends that were getting visibility um, through different subcultures in the 60s. Um, yeah. Definitely are starting to see these more openly gay characters, but a lot of it, maybe Hammerfeld specifically, they're still very much sexualized. And this is, again, mostly women. Like, we're still not seeing a lot of openly gay men or queer-coded men um, in horror at this point. Um, you know, we saw a little bit early on, really didn't see much 50s, 60s. Of course, once we get into the 70s, that starts to shift. But for the most part, when you're in like the late 60s, early 70s, you know, we're moving out of the Hayes Code and the lesbian vampire trope is really starting to take off. Um, you know, of course, we saw it in gothic literature with Carmilla. We saw it um, in the Hayes Code horror, Dracula's Daughter, which, you know, had to be watered down. But now it's able to exist in this post- Hayes Code world. Um, and Hammer Films is generally credited as the team responsible for igniting the lesbian vampire craze um, with their Karnstein trilogy, uh, which includes the vampire lovers. In a lot of their films, you'll see that these women are very much sexualized um, and it's through the male gaze. It's kind of like this these titular characters to kind of arouse, you know, yeah, the male viewer and outside of Hammer films, we also saw this explosion of exploitation and erotic horror films, um, many of which are my favorites. Um, but uh, we saw like Vampiros Lesbos by Jesus Franco, who directed many, many lesbian vampire exploitation films um, and The Velvet Vampire, which is one of my favorites, who's directed by Stephanie Rothman, who's actually like the only woman at the time to direct a lesbian vampire film through the female gaze, which is very apparent when you watch the film. You can tell that there's sort of this feminist awareness, right. um, which I really like. Uh, so we're seeing a lot of that, but a lot of these lesbian characters, it feels like you're just kind of watching a softcore porn. <laughs> Especially um, a lot of the vampire ones, because they're yes. like not biting each other on the neck. They're like biting each other just above the boob like right under oh yeah the, 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 you're like they, that doesn't, they didn't need to do that no. they did that on purpose yeah it's definitely interesting with the hammer films as far as costuming it's really just period costuming except that it's sexy for the women yeah you know the men don't look that sexy no it, <laughs> it's very flowy and it's very like lots of rich reds it's yeah that color palette of like velvets and silks and chiffons and then these men are in these like brocade jackets with the necks up to their ears and they're like yeah i'm going to defeat you and I'm like okay you're no fun <laughs> yeah exactly the lesbian vampire thing is really fascinating to me because it's produced, you know, so much of everyone's favorite queer horror films. And there's sort of maybe a sense of reclamation and like these sort of exploitative, you know, lesbian films directed by men for men. And now we're like, actually, thanks. We like them. Right. Um, <laughs> but when I think about the costuming, you really do see a lot of those rich reds and blacks with vampires lesbos it's a lot of like flowy chiffon lingerie situations um in the velvet vampire what's her name i believe her name's diane is the velvet vampire and she's of course <laughs> wearing red basically the entire time which i love i love a strong color story so she's wearing lots of flowy reds and 
blacks and what i really love about the velvet vampire um as far as costuming goes is that she very much feels it's never she's never wearing something really tight it's always yeah. very loose um which again is loose you know synonymous with androgyny we'll never know but um <laughs> she's also wearing like she'll wear like a strong you know black hat and it looks very masculine and you know has like a little I don't think she ever wears a bolo tie, but she has like a strap on her hat that kind of looks like that thin um, bolo tie okay. kind of material. You know, she's like this weird vampire from the desert. So you see a lot of these kind of um, rough around the edges, Western influences in her costuming, just like these little touches, but you're still getting the the black and the red color palettes that you associate with vampires. But, you know, she remains very feminine while at the same time, in these kind of loose kind of ghostly silhouettes. And I absolutely love it. Uh, in Vampires Lesbos, it's a little more like highly sexualized, but you're still getting right. those color palettes. Something I also noticed across both of those films and the plethora of other lesbian vampire films from the early 70s. I mean, gosh, most of everyone's favorite lesbian vampire films were literally made in 1971. Like that was just a crazy year. But you'll see a lot of, um, like I had mentioned before, the kind of gendered costuming in the supporting cast. You saw it here, but this time you really saw it come through in the colors. You know, before we just saw it in the silhouettes, but here we're seeing it in a lot of the women that are being preyed on by these vampires are wearing lots of pink, tons of pink, yes. lots of frills, very lots girly. Of white. Yeah. White. Yeah. Lots of very akin to like the Rosemary's Baby kind of color palette. Yeah. Um, which again is a very heavily symbolic color palette within that film. But you're really seeing not only the silhouettes, but the colors play into these very strongly gendered heteronormative um characters uh in the velvet vampire of course the female is dressed in that uh that kind of girly attire but then we also see her boyfriend who's very much like the kind of lumberjack type like denim Mm -hmm. uh rugged sort of type and they're they're really they really lean into that and so you'll really see that come through even more so in the 70s than it did before Um, And I find that really interesting how a character, an antagonist can be costumed in such a way that sort of, they they almost want them to feel, they want like based in reality, but a little ethereal. Um, And then you ground the heteronormativity in the other characters. I also noticed a lot when they chose the period for for the piece, it was a lot of high regency, which is a lot of those umpire waist, which is the band that Mm -hmm. comes right under the breast line. And then it was this flowing straight skirt so think of like Jane Austen those types yeah. of, of of movies and I thought that was a very interesting choice to frame the breast and the way that they did when they were taking bites out of each other's breasts mm-hmm. you know and not using the neck as a penetrative spot for the vampire so like it, yeah it was it was an interest it was a very interesting choice and I don't think that they they didn't not do that on purpose you know oh yeah absolutely you can tell that not only was it like like the choosing the empire waist 
cut. Yeah. You're that's full emphasis on the breasts. Oh yeah. They were like, like spilling out of those dresses sometimes. They really like, were. They really were. I mean, and the looks are absolutely fabulous. Everything yeah. looks amazing. Yeah. Um, but yeah, very, very intentional. And it really, you know, when it comes to these kinds of films, makes me think about the male gaze more than most films make me think about it because yes. it's these sexual stories about women, but it's made for the male viewer and something I was kind of pondering was um, when it comes to like those color palettes that we see where you know the female victim is wearing lots of pinks and baby blues and whites and frills and you know this that and the other it kind of made me feel like it's there's this sort of fantasy that many straight men had you know making these films and I guess women you know Stephanie Rothman was very aware of this trope yeah. Um, where turning like 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 feminine women can't be gay. We're still playing into this sort of lesbians are butch, you know. Right. Or and they're predatory. Yeah, yeah, they're predatory and you know, they're the other and they're dangerous and you know, they wouldn't be they wouldn't be dressed as, you know, the average American girl next door. Um, And so I kind of feel like there's this fantasy where you have these female victims dressed super, super feminine and they're making it. So there's this kind of like, they can't be gay. There's no way that woman can be gay. We need them to look as straight as possible. So the vampire turning them gay makes this like bigger erotic impact of, ooh, feminine women are gay, even though, surprise, (laughs) feminine women are gay. (laughs) Um, What? I had no idea. (laughs) Yeah. So- I definitely feel like that was intentional, not yeah. not necessarily even to point out the lesbian vampire as the lesbian, because like we know. Right. But <laughs> but yeah. more so that like it's hot to think of this like feminine woman turning right. to a lesbian because that seems so unheard of when it's like you played yourself, they're everywhere. Yeah, it's a, it's an interesting trope to to dive into because then it, it almost straddles now I'm not an expert on porn I don't <laughs> I, I don't what? watch it I, I I don't watch it I find it comical I think it's very strange and I'm always just kind of like what it is but very they, strange <laughs> the idea of like straight men being attracted to girl on girl action in that way of like very high beautiful women like high femme beautiful women yeah you know, like coercing each other into these situations kind of thing. It's definitely through a male gaze. So I definitely want to see the Velvet Vampire because – Yeah, you'd love it. You'd love I, it. I love female gaze films, and they're so hard to describe to people if you if you just don't know the difference. But for as a woman, mm-hmm. watching a movie through the female lens, you're, it's like a exhale. It's like a, oh, okay. Yeah. It's, it's going to be normal. It's fine. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, it's like what many women feel like when they watch Birds of Prey, even though it would have been an even stronger female gaze if, you know, the production company didn't get involved and cut a bunch of stuff. Right. Which, uh, yeah, it's, it's just, just little moments. It's the little moments that you can just tell. Exactly. Like like using Birds of Prey as an example, like just the moment of of Carly Quinn handing Black Canary a hair tie. Like yeah. that is completely That's realistic. That's the female gaze. It's like, yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> yes, completely. Another Hammer film 
that I think about a lot. Um, again, 1971, crazy yeah. year for man. They must have had people working round the clock, just <laughs> Hammer films. I mean, they produced so much just in that year. Oh my god, they really it's, did. It's insane. They were able to get the rights and do Doctor Jekyll and Sister Hyde. I'm so curious about this film after reading about it. Yeah, yeah. It's a really interesting one. Um, When it comes to um, androgyny, again, buzzword. um, (laughs) It's Again, it's one of the other earlier representations of a gender transition on screen. It's the same sort of thing where you're like, they're not necessarily doing it in the name of trans people. They're doing it because it's like, oh, wacky sisterhood. Yeah. Um, And I also read it as like a man grappling with this inner feminine inside of him that he's trying to tamp down because it's it's still not kosher for men to be feminine. That's still a negative trait. It's okay for women to want to be masculine, but it's still not okay for men to want to be feminine. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I also read it that way as well. That's what's difficult is that like, I think that a lot of queer horror comes down to how queer people read it now and how they feel like it represents them and less of, you know, especially when it comes to these like early 70s and prior to that, uh, these films where we don't really know the intentions behind them. Right. Um, But that it's another way is, you know, in the same, there's the conversation of like reclaiming, you know, slurs against gay people. It's the same like, we can reclaim exploitative films about us too yeah. and turn it into, you know, our own narrative. But something I love about this film is particularly the costuming because it, it does feel very intentional and is again, another way that, you know, like you had said, it kind of feels like Hyde is kind of wrestling with his femininity because we're seeing sister Hyde, dressed in the um, the same kind of big, bulky men's coat and necktie that um, Dr. Jekyll is. Uh, and I really liked seeing that. There's this great shot of them next to each other wearing the same thing. And it's this, you know, of course, this like super gorgeous like woman who's playing Sister Hyde. Uh, and she's wearing this super bulky, kind of like doesn't fit her in a way, um, you know, men's clothing. And a lot of people talk about how that felt like androgyny to them. And again, you know, are we calling it androgyny just because it's a woman in a men's clothing? Right. Um, I definitely like to read that as, you know, it's really the inside, the feminine side that we're seeing of Hyde um, being portrayed. And, you know, it's him wearing those clothes. That's why it doesn't really fit. Right. Uh, But we're seeing the, the representation of, this sort of inner struggle. Yeah. So then as we get into the 70s more, um, I really want to talk about this one with you because this is one of our favorite films together, but also one of your favorite characters in horror. <laughs> like, let's talk about Black Christmas because yeah. the first time I saw this movie, I did not realize that Barb was um, being portrayed as bisexual. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that and like how yeah. she's being portrayed. Because you, you talk about her you know, wearing these like looser men's button downs and these jeans and stuff. And and then I look at my wardrobe and I'm like, oh gosh, that's the stuff that I wear. But also (laughs) like we were talking about this yesterday of like, when does that wardrobe become, you know, where does it straddle the line of like young women wearing that being portrayed as queer? And then we see the line shifting as they get older, that older women that wear these things are just 
older women, mostly from the Southwest, like doing pottery. Like, you know, totally. like there's that weird. <laughs> yeah. Like you had mentioned, like, it's like Tony Collette. You right, know. Tony Collette and Hereditary, where she's she wearing this, like... She wouldn't be seen as queer because she's wearing, you know... Right. A masculine, you know, structured top or something. Right. Um, Barb is definitely one of my favorite characters. Um, I'm also obsessed with Margot Kidder. I think she's glorious, a great actress, beautiful, you know, stunning, never been done before, amazing, talented. You do see her in a lot of those, like, looser masculine silhouettes. Her hair's up a lot. Uh, she wears a lot of men's tops, but she also has um, a lot of feminine accessories yeah. um, and necklaces and that kind of thing. She still looks very feminine. Um, and I am I wonder how much of, you know, the masculine silhouette was an intentional choice for her. Um, and I wonder that a lot when it comes down to this kind of stuff, because when you start, when you realize a character is queer coded many, many times, you'll realize that they're wearing androgynous clothing and after a while you're like this can't be a coincidence right um and this definitely feels like one of those cases but then again she doesn't necessarily need much coding in her costume because a lot of it comes through in um the props because she's yeah reading um she's seen reading a playboy magazine and this is such a progressive film too oh yeah absolutely yeah. oh my god for 1974 super progressive film which of course is one of the reasons why it is one of my favorites and What's great about it is that the progressive aspects, you know, Barb being bisexual, just talking about abortion, you know, and being pro-choice, none of it is part of the plot necessarily. It just is. Right. It's right. just, it's part of the atmosphere. It's part of what's happening. It's part of their lives. Yeah. Yeah. It's just part of their lives. And I would say it's one of the best portrayals of, uh, of just like queer normalization, Mm -hmm. of you know pro-choice normalization um yeah. of course it's very it's a very interesting time to be doing a film and being so pro-choice because that's coming right off of roe v wade mm -hmm. um in 1974 you we just kind of had that as like a massively hot topic in the early 70s but yeah it's a pretty early portrayal of something so progressive because you also see this kind of like degress in the 80s a little bit oh god yeah you know, which is also very, very interesting. But yeah, yeah, I absolutely love Barb. Something I wonder about. She reminds me of Jennifer from Jennifer's Body in many ways. Um, mm -hmm. Because she, despite not being the, you know, the antagonist, she is portrayed as like the mean character. And you'll see that with a lot of queer characters. They're often like the mean one, you know. And of course, in Jennifer's Body, Jennifer is the monster. Um, but again, she's like mean. She's mean and bisexual. Right. <laughs> which which we love. You know, we also see that in, you know, Prom Night 2, where, you know, the antagonist is very sexually fluid and, you know, and or queer. Yeah. Um, but they're they're mean. That's something that, you know, has nothing to do with costume necessarily, but something that I think about a lot and something that comes to mind when I think of Barb. She feels like one of those really early um renditions of that kind of trope yeah like the the mean queer person do you think that that is in not empowering but like do you think that that gives these women a sort of strength to just kind of be standoffish and and be not arrogant i, I wouldn't be the word mm -hmm. but like be aggressive in the way that they want to be aggressive or do you look at that as more of a, um, a negative trait for them? I think it's very that's one that definitely feels up for interpretation. I know for mm. me I think in many ways it can give them power um, because you know when you think of even down to just like 
the demonization of like feminine characters like for example like uh regina george and mean girls right you know they're they're the popular girls are super high femme they're always super high femme and that's you know that's bad (laughs) so these characters are mean i think it's kind of like we see a lot of it's same with like the angry black woman trope yeah you know these are all very different but the common theme is that these characters are portrayed as you know the the not so nice characters they're not you know even down to the sexually active characters they're usually the mean ones and barb is one of those characters um despite you know jess obviously being sexually active we know that barb is and for some reason that kind of is looked down upon you know she's a drunk she's whatever i think in many ways it can give a character power and i think it's more about how we as an audience throughout time reads those characters you know i think that in many cases people associate you know either the stereotypes of being super high femme or being gay or being black as you know as mean or bad and that's why i think that's why it's maybe reflected in those negative ways in many ways though at least when it comes to queer people you can kind of find sort of a understanding with these characters because maybe they're perhaps they're mean or they're aloof or they're annoyed or whatever because of the same reasons you are being a queer person trying to exist in the world you know oftentimes their frustration or their anger or you know their standoffishness makes sense um right and i think that many times queer people can see themselves in that way as far as other things of course I think it's a different story. Like the angry black woman trope is an entirely different conversation. Um, And of course the demonization of femininity is um, I think something that's kind of become a very hot topic, especially since the resurgence of Jennifer's body, which is of course I'm very excited to talk about that in the next episode. Oh yeah. You can really see um, kind of the reclamation and the, uh, the femininity. She's super high femme, which I, which I love. And it's kind of making a mockery of the mockery that was made of feminization in movies like Mean Girls. Yeah, I think it's the patriarchy just being afraid of the power that other people hold because you can even see, you know, with the women's movement of the 70s, these characters like Barb and Jess and all the other girls that live in the sorority house, the the clothing of the 70s wasn't very feminine for women. There were mini dresses, right. there were mini skirts, and there were still heels and uh, things like that. Suits. but Pantsuits yeah. galore. Pantsuits galore. Lots of sweater vests with pointed collars, which is pointed collars are traditionally a very masculine thing because we usually – you never see men really with a rounded Peter Pan collar like you would see on, on right. women because that's a softer Soft. edge. Yeah. Yeah. So there was a lot of structural lines, a lot of structural clothing happening. And all of these women, I believe, are wearing pants. I think I – th- I believe so. Yeah. yeah. I think uh, Phyllis – What's her name's character? I think is the only one that's potentially wearing a dress. Oh, no, no, no. The girl that gets killed in the beginning. I think she's in a miniskirt. But out of everybody else, everybody else has pants because it's winter. It's cold. And then especially when they go search for people Mm. out in the park, they're all wearing things that are going to protect them. They're wearing heels, but they're all wearing quite masculinely structured clothing. Yeah. And it's it's one of the first times where we're starting to see women dressed pretty practically. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, you're really actually seeing some practicality there, uh, which 
definitely didn't happen before that, you know, because before we're seeing things like, um, you know, in Vertigo, where she's wearing like a full dress and heels like in the woods, oh, yeah. you know, that's certainly not practical and probably dangerous. Oh, yeah. Well, that was another Hitchcock trope of he loved seeing blondes in helpless clothing, like heels and stuff like that. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. Yep. Yeah. Again, that's... <laughs> Whether or not Hitchcock was a queer man or not, definitely seems that the male gaze has a certain idea of what women should right. look like. Yeah. I mean, even I think of today of like when Jurassic World came out in 2015 with uh, Dallas Bryce Howard running around in those stilettos and that freaking pencil skirt. I was impressive, like, she is nonetheless. Impressive. I love a woman who could fight it out in heels and run around in heels, but also have you ever worn heels? <laughs> because yeah. there's a reason why women take their shoes off at weddings to go dance on the dance floor. Like, <laughs> Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But speaking of heels that a lot of people can't walk or move oh, in, yeah. we have a complete 180, and we definitely died into this in our last episode with Jen. Um, but now we have a, com- a completely different look into sexuality, and that is – 1975's The Rocky Horror Picture Show. I think that people that are, you know, only loosely familiar with Rocky Horror Picture Show are surprised that it came out in the mid-70s. Yes. yes. Um, because I know I was when I, you know, was a teen and found that out. I had always imagined it was some, like, you know, 80s thing. But it's very much a 70s glam rock inspired um, film. And I would absolutely love to hear your hot takes on Rocky Horror Picture Show since I was unfortunately (laughs) not able to be at our last episode, but I would love to have the conversation now. Absolutely. Oh, I could talk about Rocky Horror Picture Show all day. Please. (laughs) I don't actually remember when I was introduced to this film because I was so young watching it because I think I remember wanting to watch it earlier and – you know, selling to my mother, like I saw the the box at Blockbuster and being like, oh, but he's just wearing women's underwear. And my mother being like, no, no, I, I, there's more to that movie than just that. So like, let's wait another year or two. Yeah. <laughs> but I remember watching it with her for the first time and being like, if you have any questions. And I didn't because I, I think a lot of it did go over my head when I was younger. But I became so enthralled by this like crazy explosion of self-expression. And Mm -hmm. even though I, I, you know, I am a straight woman and, you know, I didn't, I grew up in theater. So I knew a lot of gay men and women. I knew a lot of queer people where that was a world where we could all coexist in together. And it was so beautiful going, you know, in high school, having my gay friends and my straight friends all together and going at midnight to go see the Rocky Horror Picture Show and dressing up. And like, it it just became this like theater kid world that we were all a part of. And like, who doesn't love Tim Curry in lingerie? I mean, gay or straight, man or woman, he looks good. He looks amazing. He looks, he looks good. We can't, we simply can't deny that. Yeah. Same with Miss Susan Sarandon. Oh, who, she's gorgeous. Again, you know, makes another appearance in our next episode uh, in The Hunger. Of course, the lesbian vampires will always prevail. <laughs> <laughs> the, le- the lesbians won uh, with Miss Susan Sarandon. But yeah, I feel the same way about Rocky Horror. Um, you know, growing up in high school, I was not out like i'm i'm a queer woman if i didn't mention that before i'm bisexual um if you couldn't tell by how much i talk about lesbian (laughs) vampires um 
But the Rocky Horror Picture Show was something that was really important to me in high school because I kind of grew up in the um, the boonies of Oregon. I grew up in sort of the countryside uh, outside of Portland, so in the suburbs. And uh, there was a lot of conservative people where I grew up. It was like conservative people and like Mormon Intel dads, like oh, that God. was sort of like, and then like racist people. And that's what took up a lot of uh, the people that were around me in high school. But I found, you know, this kind of like the 10% of sort of the weirdos and the the queer kids and um, just the, the not racist people in my <laughs> high school were able to kind of find each other and form a relatively close bond. And a lot of that had to do with going to see the Rocky Horror Picture Show live at the Clinton Theater, which is a local theater in town that I still really, really love and go to as much as I can. But I think that it's the best part about Rocky Horror, which is revolutionary in the 70s, yes. um, definitely post Hays Code, the longevity of it and the way it's become such a staple for kind of the outsider kids yeah not even just queer kids yeah just anybody who's weird yeah this whole experience and it really really opened me up to exploring my identity not even when it comes to my sexuality just in expressing myself and kind of being okay with being you know a weirdo and god I sound like that <laughs> I sound like that um that clip of Cole Sprouse's character on Riverdale where he's just like I'm a weirdo <laughs> you wouldn't understand but <laughs> I I feel like I went when I was younger I went through this phase in like middle school where I was really wacky and um, loud. I was I was a loud kid, um, but I would wear like I would think I'm really unique and wear like crazy outfits. And then I got like bullied for it, so I like stopped. <laughs> yeah. Like high school, I was like, oh, that's not going as well as I thought. And then I like <laughs> stopped for a little bit. And I really associate coming back to my like weird loud self with Rocky Horror because I yeah. started going to it, seeing what life really could be like. It also felt like kind of a a really adult experience going yeah. to see that as a teen. And so it just sort of opened me up to a world. And thanks to Rocky Horror, I'm still really loud um, <laughs> and queer. So yeah, it's really crazy how different of a film that was in comparison to everything that had come right before it. Yeah, I definitely use Rocky Horror as an okay for me to feel sexy because I always felt growing up that I was – not that I wasn't allowed to be sexy, but was kind of always told, like, be valued for your thoughts and, you know, don't use your body to, to gain access to things and stuff like that. Like, use yeah. your brain. Be an intelligent woman, which I'm very proud that I am. But the older I got, the more conflicted I got with, like, well, how do I, you know, like, as an adult, like, I'm allowed to enjoy sex. I'm allowed to feel mm -hmm. sexy and empowered as a woman. And you can still feel sexy and empowered and be smart and valued for your brain. So it was mm -hmm. definitely a way for me to like contend with both sides of myself. I And I also felt very safe in that space. I always felt totally. like, like growing up right outside New York City, going into the city as an older teen and a young adult, you, even as a young teen, which shouldn't have happened, you unfortunately get ogled at. Um, and I learned very quickly how uncomfortable the male gaze can be. And have gotten my ass grabbed on the subway a few times. Um, and it's a very uncomfortable place to be in. And so going to the Rocky Horror Picture Show and being able to 
express myself and feel confident and sexy and not Mm. be ogled at is a very empowering feeling. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. What's your take on the costuming in Rocky Horror Picture Show? Because it's very much this sort of like glam rock fever dream, heavily, heavily drag inspired, lots of actual drag. Um, what's your take on it all? From last episode, when we talked about the history of it, um, the costume designer took a lot of the pieces from the stage, but then reinvented new pieces for the film. And I Mm. think because the stage show came out in the late 60s, early 70s in London, you were getting just this underground scene in London at the time. And then punk started to come into play. And glam rock, as you were saying, started to come into place. By the time the film... um, took its final form and what we know it as now Mm -hmm. you had Bowie you had Blondie you had all of these underground you know the Sex Pistols all of these underground bands coming forward now and sort of blurring the line of sexuality blurring the line of um the the trigger word again and we need to do like in Pee Wee's Playhouse where they say the secret word and everybody screams (laughs) so if you're listening to this podcast and you hear the word androgyny just scream yeah um (laughs) Um, I, yeah, I love, I love the costumes. I think they're so much fun because usually designers will stick to very simple palettes, Mm -hmm. you know, very simple prints that will make a a film timeless or because trends in fashion ebb and flow so quickly. But then you have something like this, that's like a shit ton of glitter and a shit ton of color And weird, you have this weird, like, humpback on Richard O'Brien. You have this gold Speedo and these gold, like, Chuck Taylors on Rocky. And those would not stand up the test of time, and yet they do stand the test of time. Yeah. So they've become iconic. Yeah. And you even see that a little bit in the sequel, the, the, the loose sequel of Shock Treatment, where it's he's using a lot of pleather. He's using a lot of colors. A lot of these like um, Pepto-Bismol, like pastel colors, like when you get mm. up into the lab in Rocky Horror and the pink yeah. that's on the wall. I mean, there's even, gosh, there's a, even a rainbow flag in the in the tank when they're building Rocky. Yeah. Like he's going through the colors of the rainbow flag. So there's there's no subtlety in this movie and I love it. Yeah, that's, I think it really marks a big turning point. Um, and you see it more and more after this, as we get into the eighties where, um, we start to see overtly queer film being made. Yeah. Um, in that, you know, gets mainstream traction, um, and actually sees the light of day. That's what's so amazing about Rocky Horror is that it saw the light of day. Yeah. Um, of course not received well by everyone. No. Um, in the seventies and still isn't yeah. um, received well by everyone, but it got to the right people yeah. and the right people found it. And that's what matters. And it, the way it is so um, unabashedful in its costuming, uh, the costuming matches the energy in it. It really, really speaks to people. I think in a very special way, I can imagine that at the time it very much was a new experience for queer people to actually see a film that so, you know, blatantly is queer. Yeah. That I don't think was an experience that queer people had before that. And so I really do think it's a big turning point. Crazy that it was in 1975 and definitely is something that Mark sort of the shift towards something else happening in the horror film world. 
Yeah. And I feel like the costuming also allows those in the queer community that are either questioning or um, coming into their own in their sexuality in that way to find themselves through the clothing because you can be any one of those characters and mm-hmm. embody any one of those characters. Like I, I remember I used to work um, with this drag queen in Florida, Miss Pop-Tart. She's wonderful. Love that name. That's a good <laughs> She's great. And every Halloween we would do the Rocky Horror Picture Show and Miss Pop-Tart would be the MC, and then she would have um, me and another woman as her like she calls her French pastries. So I forgot. I think I was like like Miss Croissant or something like that. But Oh, my God. That's so cute. They, she would do a costume contest with everybody. And the one year um, – and this is, this is why Rocky Horror exists and, and stands the test of time. And there was this young gay boy. I think he was about 16 or 17. He had come by himself and he was dressed up as Frank. And this was his first experience seeing it in the theaters. And he got up on stage. Bless his confidence. My goodness. He got up on stage and said that this is my first time seeing the Rocky Horror Picture Show, and this is the first place I have felt that I belonged. And Aww. the whole crowd just went nuts. Obviously, he won the costume contest because his costume is also amazing. <laughs> but to, to like use these characters as a device to find yourself, I think that is so important in horror, mm-hmm. especially in horror, because that's what we do as horror consumers, right? Like we we identify with these characters, we find strength within ourselves, within these characters. And then we imbue these these positive traits into our real lives to give us strength and to keep us going. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Rocky Horror, I definitely feel like, is one of the first really external ways that people were able to find themselves through a horror film. You know, yeah. before that, you know, like we saw in the 50s with like, I was a teenage werewolf. That, you know, we can sort of interpret it as the character finding himself and pull that out of it but rocky horror is different because it's not coding anything it's giving it to you straight well not straight giving it to you gay and um you're then able to take that and absorb it and find yourself through that and just enjoy it um for exactly what it is and i think that's what's so cool about it we're we're now starting to see a shift towards the Um, the external in queer horror. And I think that it's a very exciting time with Rocky Horror coming into the picture. The picture show. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) The late night double feature picture show. Exactly. (laughs) Now I have one question for you with Rocky Horror. Um, Because I've read different articles from different people in the queer community. How do you feel about the term transsexual being used in the movie? Because I know that that is an outdated term now. Mm -hmm. Like, does that hinder your watch of the movie does that color it in any way or is it just kind of like it is of its time yeah it's it's definitely I think that it is of its time it definitely is an outdated term um and you know not one that I would ever personally use um but I feel comfortable with Rocky Horror Mm -hmm. um still being a staple in, you know, my queer coming up. And I think it's a really important film for many, many queer people. And for that, I don't necessarily think that it's like, oh, we should never watch this. Right. Um, Especially because there's a lot of movies that don't age well. And I don't necessarily think that Rocky Horror is one that doesn't age well, Um, especially because I don't think their use of the term is necessarily in mockery. Right. Yeah. It's more of just a statement. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's it, and it's really blatant. Um, it's very upfront. You know, would I want to see that in a film that comes out now? Probably not. I would hope that we would have progressed past, you know, the need to be using words like that that are outdated. But then again, in the context of Rocky Horror, it's not like it's um, a bunch of straight people talking about trans people um, and using a slur in that way. So it's definitely, I think it's an ongoing conversation Hmm. um, on, you know, what's considered something where we should, you know, ban it. Um, When can we, you know, separate the art from, you know, the the dating of whenever it came out. Context is key. Um, But yeah, definitely a conversation. I personally would not count out Rocky Horror by any means. It's just a matter about progressing. With yeah, the absolutely. Yeah. I mean, yeah, like you said, it, it has been such a positive force in so many people's queer journeys that absolutely that is that is how I feel about it. Well, Jolene, do you have any final thoughts on the 30s through the 70s <laughs> of our queer horse special? Um, I don't we talked about a lot. And this is a really great conversation. And I definitely learned a lot of things. And thank you for asking for answering my the questions that I've had, um, yeah. which because you've been really great with me with this journey. Because I don't want to say the wrong thing, but I want to ha- like be engaged in this conversation to to be more active and to be more aware. So absolutely, well, thank you for having the conversation <laughs> with me. And I've also learned a lot because you're very knowledgeable about your horror history. Thank you, and I love learning about all of your lesbian vampires. And I can't wait to watch more <laughs> of these lesbian vampire movies because yes. they are so much fun. Because even as a straight woman, I'm like, can my tits do this in this dresses? Because this is wonderful. Like it's yeah. just like a you don't need a bra. <laughs> you just don't need it. Yeah, I'll send you a list of like 70 lesbian vampire films for your pleasure. Perfect. <laughs> Well, thank you guys so much for listening to this episode. We can't wait for part two, which will be coming out this month as well, very soon with a special guest to engage in the conversation with us as we travel through the 80s, pick back up on that and all the way up to the present day. And we'll talk about, um, you know, the future of where we see queer horror going. And we'll probably talk about androgyny again because I'm not done with it i'm hung up (laughs) (laughs) but thank you again as always for joining us don't forget to follow us on instagram at to die for podcast that's d-y-e and on twitter at die podcast and next time you go into your closet remember that your pieces could also be to die for